You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. And thanks so much for coming today. Love to get to know you better if you're new. And uh, Houston will let you know how that we can do that at the end of the service. A couple of brief things before we dive into our text. Number one, um, we are submitting to you as a congregation a new elder candidate. And so elder candidacy is basically where a man sits with the uh, full elders for a year and he gets to evaluate us. Is this a good fit? We get to evaluate him. This is a good fit. And we ask you before that even starts, do you guys see that as a good fit? Is there things we don't know about that we need to know about? Any concerns that you have or any great feedback that you have positively about this, this guy? And so Brian McGinn is someone that we are uh, recommending to become a elder candidate uh, over the next year. And so we always give the congregation two weeks on the front side and then two weeks on the end of that year uh, to give us feedback. So we want to hear from you. Please let us know. Let the elders know via Slack or in person what you think about Brian being an elder candidate. Um, secondly, I just want to remind us to stay up to date on the podcast, this series that we're doing called Gender for the Glory of God builds on itself. And so I uh, just encourage you to stay connected because the pieces fit together. And so if you're, if you're gone on a Sunday, the podcast is a great way to stay up on that. And in addition, there is a Slack channel for you to ask any and in, in, any and every question about this topic as it relates to our culture, as it relates to the church, as it relates to the family. And uh, you'll, you can sign up for that group on Slack. You click the little plus uh, by the groups and you'll see gender sermon series group. And you can add yourself to that if you'd like and post any questions you might have. And then finally, uh, today this, this message is about gender as God has designed it in relation to marriage. And I always like to keep single people in mind when we, when we teach on marriage because uh, we don't want single people to feel alienated. And we don't want to primarily just be a family, a biological family-focused church uh, because the family of God is more than that. And so two things for singles. If you're single here today, number one, you might not always be. And so I want to encourage you to take notes for the future. And secondly, you're not single in the sense that you do have a family, and it's the church. And this is why we call the church, of, uh, the Vine Church, uh, a family of spirit-filled believers, seeks to make disciples. Like, that's what we are. And so in the family of God, you're going to be in a city group with other married people. And if they're struggling or, you know, you want to pray with them or help them in some way, you knowing your Bible and what it says about marriage is a really good thing. And so um, everybody has a role here. Everybody has a voice here. So this sermon isn't just for married people. It's for everyone. All right. So let me summarize where we were. Last week, we looked at what it means to be made in the image of God and how gender, male and female, are created by God and for his glory. Gender is by God and for God. We didn't think it up. God created the bodies that we find ourselves in. And said that they're very, very good. And so we give glory to God when we acknowledge this. 
and seek to use our bodies to glorify him, draw attention to him that I carry in my very essence something of what God is like. So when you see me, when I see you, we think, man, God is great. God is awesome. Look at what he has created in our physical beings. We have minds and emotions and thoughts. Like that reflects God. That's amazing that we can do that. And we do that male and female together, not one without the other, but together. This is his design, that there would be unity in diversity because God exists as unity and diversity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So we reflect him in that. And it's a profound privilege to bear the image of God. Like That's no small statement in the scriptures. That's a beautiful, profound privilege. So that was kind of last week, 30,000 foot view of what it means to be made in the image of God. And today we're going to get into the more specifics of how God created us male and female and what that means for marriage and the design of marriage. So let me just tell you kind of my point for today, and then we're going to see what the Bible says and unpack this. The whole point that we're going to see today from the text of Genesis 2 is that God created marriage, and that in marriage, he calls men to bear ultimate leadership responsibility for the family, and women to co-labor with their husbands as their appointed helpmate within the family. I'm going to say that again. Genesis 2 this morning is going to show us that God created marriage and that in marriage he calls men to bear ultimate leadership responsibility for the family and women to co-labor with their husbands as their appointed helpmate within the family. And just want to admit right out of the gate that we understand this is very countercultural. This is very countercultural. But I want to remind us that in this series, we're seeking to draw our convictions from what we see in the Bible and then base our convictions on that as opposed to coming to our convictions all on our own and then seeking to import those into the scriptures. Okay? So this implies ears to hear. So Linda's going to come now. She's going to read our text for us. If you have your Bible, open it up to Genesis 2. 15 through 25. Genesis 2, 15 through 25. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for what it shows us, for how it helps us, how you have um, ordained it as a gift for us. So I just pray, Lord, for ears to hear this morning, that we would have humble hearts, that we would ask your word to adjust us, that we would not ask you to um, adjust your word to us, but we would adjust to you, God. Would you help us with that? Would you help us with that? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So this morning from this text, I'm going to just basically draw out four conclusions for how this text corresponds to the design of marriage. And I'm just going to give you four things and then we're going to seek to apply it. All right. So number one, coming from verse 15, this is just kind of obvious. The first thing I want you to see is the order of creation. The first thing I want you to see is the order of creation. Verse 15 says that God, obviously, here it's implied, uh, created Adam first. Okay? And this is something we're going to come back to a lot because when we get into the New Testament passages about gender in marriage and the church, we're going to see that they draw upon this ordering of creation. Okay? God creates Adam first. It's clear in the text. Now, this does not mean, nor does it ever mean, that Adam is more valuable than his wife, than Eve. Never. We've clearly established last week, male and female both equally created in the image of God. But in an ancient Middle Eastern context, we always have to remember that's the context that the Bible was written What are their cultural assumptions? When they read this text, what are they hearing? We don't think first about what a Madisonian in 2020 is hearing. We think about what an ancient Middle Eastern mindset is hearing. And what they're hearing is order of creation is a big deal. Order of creation is a big deal. Um, Who comes into the world first is not a big deal in terms of value, but it is a big deal in terms of role and responsibility. So the firstborn in the Old Testament, you'll see this, is known as the one who leads. The firstborn is the one who bears the weight of responsibility. Uh, There's a whole big ancient Old Testament concept about the, the firstborn. Why did God create Adam first? We don't know. He doesn't explain it. It just is, and the rest of the Bible assumes that this is a clear clue for us to pay attention to. So we're going to come back to this in coming weeks. I just want you to kind of log this in your mind. Number one, the order of creation is a big deal for how the family and the church is ordered in God's design. Number two, Eve is created and designated a helpmate to her husband. Eve is created and named as a helpmate for her husband. So we see here in in chapter 2 that this is the first time that God designates something as, quote, not good. 
So we talked about last week, I remind people of this all the time, when seeking to interpret your Bible, one thing you always want to look for is repeated words. The repeated word over and over and over again in Genesis 1 is, it was good, it was good, it was good. God made this and it was good. God made this and it was good. God made this, it was so good. And, and he made um, male and female and he saw that it was very good. And then all of a sudden here at verse 18, for the first time, it's like, whoa, this, this word slams into us because it's so foreign to our ears after all that we've read and something is not good. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. So God states it. God identifies it. God designed it. It wasn't that Adam noticed it and then he came and complained to the Lord. No, God just saw it and he names it. It's not good that the man is alone. He can't image me just by himself. There needs to be an ordained counterpart. One that complements him and complements his physical design. And look at what it says in 2.18. I will make a helper fit for him. I will make a helper fit for him. So God calls the wife Eve Adam's appointed helper, his appointed helper. Now, let's stop and talk about this word helper a little bit. It can trip us up, I think, if we're not careful. Uh, Check out this quote from a commentary I read this week. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Lest any imagine (coughs) that helper is a diminishing or servile term, It must be understood that it is the name used to describe God as the helper of Israel. Often, quote, helper was used to reference God's aid against Israel's enemies. Moses referred to God as his, quote, helper who delivered him from Pharaoh. So man's, quote, helper would be no weak sister by any stretch of a misogynist imagination. So think about it like this. It's easy for us to to import a negative definition of helper. But there's also a very positive sense of the word helper that I want us to emphasize. And and the the commentary helps us. But think about it like this. When, When anyone says, hey, could you help me? That implies weakness on whose part? It implies weakness on the part of someone who's asking, right? So I ask Taylor or Autumn or Emery or any of my kids and, and my wife all the time to like help me in my shop. I got these big pieces of heavy lumber and I can't negotiate that very easily on my, on my own. I'm just not strong enough. Does that mean that if they're my helper, they're second class somehow to me? No, never. That doesn't make any sense. It means that I'm not strong enough. It means I need help. It means I'm weak. So their strength plus my strength means we get stuff done. So if you're the helper in the biblical sense, that implies a complementary strength that somebody needs. So this text is not demeaning to wives. It's an important reflection of God's very character as a helper. What did Jesus say to his disciples? He says, I will send the helper, meaning the Holy Spirit. We see that in the Gospels. 
God the Holy Spirit is named the helper. So wives, in this sense, this title that you bear is just simply one way that you uniquely, as a woman, image God. Carry the image of God in your being and display to an onlooking world what godly helpers look like. That's an honorable calling. That's very beautiful. So this is not degrading the wife. It's elevating the importance of the wife. Because it points to the fact that a husband is deficient in marriage without his wife. He needs help. I can't raise these kids by myself. I promise you nobody wants that. There are so many times in, in my marriage of 21 and almost 22 years, I recognize the strength of my wife is the biggest help to my leadership. And I would, do, I would be an absolute fool to not listen to her and enable her strengths, especially where I'm weak. There have been times, as you can, I'm sure, imagine in 20, almost 22 years when I've been thinking, hey, I think we need to go this direction, and she comes alongside me as my helpmate and says, I'm not sure that's wise. And in retrospect, I'm really thankful that hopefully I humbly listened to her, and we didn't go the direction that I was thinking, because she's a faithful helpmate. So one practical application for husbands in the room might be, do you know where you need help? She probably does. Are you humble enough to ask her, husbands, and then listen? We're going to talk more about this in a second. But are you willing to confess, hey, I need help here. I don't have it all together. That, that might be just one game-changing application for many of us in the room. So number one, we see the order of creation. Number two, we see Eve is created and named as a helpmate to her husband. Thirdly, we see Adam naming the animals and naming Eve. So you'll see that if you just glance at verse 19 and 20, I won't read it, that God asked Adam to name the animals. That's like a, a defining of somebody's boundaries, that you are this and you're not this. I have the authority to give you a name. That's also in the ancient Middle Eastern mindset. Naming something is a, is a sign of leadership and authority. And also he names his wife. Look at verse 23. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. See, what, what Adam feels like, this is like a song. He breaks out in poetry. That's why it's indented in your Bible. Because he's been looking at all these animals and going, the design doesn't work. The design doesn't work. Me and these animals, we can't be one flesh. It doesn't work. And then he says, at last, there's this other creature who's kind of like me, in, in imaging God, but very different from me, and the design fits. The design fits, and he bursts into worship, song. At last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And then we see that he names her. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. So again, this is just another clue of primary leadership in an ancient mindset, that he names the animals and he names his wife. It's not the other way around. So it's not that man and woman are interchangeable with gender being meaningless in marriage in terms of roles. 
gender is presented as having purpose. That we're purposefully together imaging God and that we're purposefully complementing one another. We, we are the same in image bearers, different in role and function. So we see in the naming uh, a unique leadership. And then finally, we're going to see one clue that we're going to look at more in depth actually next week as we unpack the failure of Adam's leadership and the failure of Eve listening to God's enemy. But when the husband and wife, they abandon listening to God and just go out on their own, exert their autonomy, just me and my feelings, I'm going to do whatever I want. When that happens, how does God respond? He doesn't call them both to account equally. Now, he does call them both to account, but he calls Adam to account first. He goes to Adam first. They both sinned in horrible ways, but God calls Adam to account first. His family's fallen apart, and God calls him to account first. Look at, just flip over a page probably in your Bible, Genesis 3, verse 8. Genesis 3, 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. So they're together, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? So this is indicative of, of, of God seeing primary responsibility on the husband's part, on Adam's part. For sure, he has words for Eve, and she's not off the hook. But this order of confrontation from God is a clue to how God has designed families to flourish. See, if the family falls apart, God comes to the husband first. We see this all the time in the world of sports. <clears throat> a, a sports team falls apart. And the coach gets up behind the podium <clears throat> and he submits his resignation. He's called to account. Now, the team falling apart, was it all his fault? Of course not. The assistants, of course, played a role in that. Was it his or her fault? Who, who knows exactly? But he bears, or she, bears the ultimate responsibility for that team. And so he or she has to resign. So let me sum up these reasons that we've seen from our text. Number one, we see the order of creation. Number two... God is created, or sorry, Eve is created and named as a helpmate to her husband. Adam naming the animals and naming Eve. And then God goes to Adam first after they sin. So here's the statement that I want us to see this morning. God created marriage, and in marriage he calls men to bear ultimate responsibility for the family as the leader, and women to co-labor with their husbands as their appointed helpmate within the family. So I want to ask now, what, what are the implications for us in marriage? <clears throat> Number one, I just want to say right off the bat that for any, if there's any chance for this to have a working endurance, a healthy flourishing in our marriages, it's going to imply humility and listening. It's going to imply humility and listening to God and to one another. See, if it's just all about me and my gifts and how I'm wired and my default settings, 
I don't really care what God says. I just want to care more about my feelings. Like looking internally first. What do I find here? And then seek to import that onto God and his word. No, no, no. If it's the other way around, though, and it's all about God and his glory, God, what do you have to say to me? And what does that mean for the other person? There's a chance that this can be really, really beautiful. Really beautiful over time. So I want to start with husbands. Husbands, there's a lot we could say. Let me just give you one thought here. Husbands, I think one thing that you need to see here is that your role as a primary leader should be defined as seeking the flourishing of your wife. Seeking the flourishing of your wife based on how she is gifted and wired. Ephesians 5, that we'll see in a few weeks, calls this nourishing and cherishing your wife. Nourishing and cherishing your wife. See Ephesians 5. See, I think it's important here. Oftentimes when we talk about leadership, we get, we get stirred up and like, what about this? What about this? And I got all this baggage. We have baggage because, and we have resistance as a kind of a default setting sometimes because we've just seen bad leadership. All of us have been burned in some form probably by abusive leadership, big or small. So then we can be think. Leadership in and of itself represents a threat. But that's not necessarily always the case. A lot of you probably have examples of good leadership in your life where leadership didn't need to feel like a threat, right? And that's what we're talking about here. Good leadership, husbands, for you, we're thinking good leadership, not threatening leadership. We're talking about good leadership. I think you could boil it down to this, feeling the weight embracing the weight of having to assess the whole organization. For you, it might be your wife and your kids. Having to assess the whole organization and doing whatever you can to make sure every aspect of the whole is thriving and flourishing. Okay? Notice we didn't say anything about you other than your preoccupation with others. You see that? I think in some ways that's how you could boil down good leadership. I'm looking at the whole and I'm asking myself, is every aspect of this whole thriving, flourishing? And husbands, I want to call you to ask that question of your wife on a regular basis. So let me just give you practical ideas just to start charting that course. Again, it's, it's, it's not... Perfection, it's direction. So how are we going to head in this direction? I think at base level, guys, super simple, husbands, it's going to look like listening and asking questions. I bet you could identify healthy leaders in your life, and I would be willing to bet maybe it was a boss or a parent or some other type of leadership role, you thought they were good leaders probably because you felt listened to by them. And they ask good questions. And so husbands, let me just feed you a few questions that you could maybe start with. You could sit down with her and maybe you're even going to take out a pen and paper, take notes. All right? That demonstrates that you're willing to listen. That demonstrates humility. You could ask her, babe, like, where am I lacking as a husband? Where am I lacking? What does your wife say? Seek her feedback. Now, wives, be gentle, okay? If he asks that, there's going to be some reciprocation here for this to be healthy. 
of humility. So ask her, where am I lacking as a husband? What does she say? She sees me all the time. She knows. So I'm going to listen and I'm not going to be defensive. Just because what she says, guys, husbands, just because it might be a little uncomfortable doesn't mean it's not super helpful. Like some of the most help I've ever got from my wife is when she's told me, hey, this, I think you need to adjust that a little bit. Hey, this, I think you might need to stop doing that. This, hey, you got to keep doing this. Okay, you're doing good here. Another one is, is just sit down with your wife and, and tell her, be thoughtful about her. Where do you see her thriving? Where do you see her come alive? Where do you see her countenance light up on a consistent basis? And then ask her. Don't assume that you know everything. Ask her. Do you agree with that assessment? I think you're really good at this. I think you really thrive here. I think you come alive here and have joy here. And do you think, do you agree? All right, you agree? Great. Well, what can I do to make sure we head in that direction more? Because I want to seek your flourishing as a leader of our home. How can we head in that direction more? And what does she say? What can I do to make sure you're thriving in your gifts for the sake of our family, for the sake of the Vine Church, for the sake of wherever you find yourself? How can, ask her this. How can I grow in the spiritual leadership of our family? How can I grow? And again, ladies, don't back up the truck. You might have a list of 45 things, but just give them one or two, and the 45 will happen in a trickle, okay? Um, one more. Guys, ask your, ask your wives this are there areas where you feel like you're struggling to trust me right now? All healthy re relationships are predicated on a foundation of trust. If trust is eroded, watch out, especially over time. Husbands, ask your wives, are there any ways that you're struggling to trust me right now? Maybe it's just a little 2% thing. I still want to know because I want it to be 100%. I don't, I don't want there to be anything preventing a oneness through lack of trust in our marriage. So this is good leadership, listening to her and seeking her blessing by not focusing on yourself. Wives, your role can also be looking at the whole more than just you. Like a, a good helpmate is someone who comes alongside, fills in the gaps, encourages the leader. Leaders are oftentimes, and wives, you know this, if you live with your husband, and you do, uh, that oftentimes leaders are insecure. A lot of times people look at me and they're like, oh man, you just seem so confident all the time. It's like, you don't see me on my bad days. You don't see what's inside my head. Like there's probably a lot more insecurity in me than, than you assume. So, a good helpmate gives wise counsel, like I already talked about with Kim. Gives wise counsel. Great leaders are going to listen really close and be helped by wise counsel. Again, I love the sports analogy. So basketball is my game, and um, I don't play anymore, but I love watching it. And I always see on TV, coach calls a timeout. The coach, what does he do? Is he like, I'm omniscient, I got this together, I'm doing my thing? No, almost always you'll see a coach huddle up with his assistants before talking to the whole team. And what is he doing? He's, you'll see him listening. He's listening to what the other, the other men or women on his, on his or her staff are seeing, right? 
They're giving him wise counsel. They're filling in the gaps. He knows he's not omniscient, right? So here's just some questions that uh, you might want to ask your husband if you're a wife. Are there ways that you feel like I'm not supporting your leadership? Are there ways you feel like I'm resisting your leadership? Are there ways that I can be a better helpmate to you? Are there better ways I can give you wise counsel? How can I help, aid, come alongside you in the spiritual leadership of our family? Let me just say this. In my experience in the last 25 years, I guess, of working in churches, there is the possibility, and we have seen it, of like the abusive um, overbearing, barking orders, kind of bad leader in a marriage. Um, that does exist. In my experience, at least, in the churches where I've worked and here at the Vine, I don't think that's mainly the problem for, for marriages. It's usually a, a more passive husband, and the wife is just kind of dragging him along and just wishing that he would take more initiative. And I'm not saying that as an indictment of anybody in the room. It just seems like a theme that is more dominant than like the overbearing, domineering jerk of a guy. And so oftentimes what will happen is, is the, the, the husband will maybe try to start to veer in the direction of initiating. And what can really help that? Wives, let me, let me say this to wives. Wives, what can really help that is just to encourage him. Like he's insecure, he doesn't know what he's doing, he feels like he's just like trying to put himself out there, but he's nervous about it, to like lead and initiate. And what you can do to really um, help him is just to encourage that. It's not going to be perfect, and there might be 10 things wrong with it, but just affirm that effort. Affirm that, hey, I'm just trying to, 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 to be a better initiator. I'm trying to love you well and seek your flourishing well. So if you see him doing one good thing and 10 kind of things are a little awkward, like just affirm that one. It's good. And over time, it'll probably get better as you seek to, to help him and encourage him. Again, for wives, let me, let me affirm this. I want to make sure I affirm this. It's not that you never question the leadership of your wife, right? I know for a fact that I need to have my wife check me and it's not that I sit around saying, here's the agenda for our family like every two days. We talk about everything, right? But at the end of the day, we both are in agreement that like for the overall direction of the family, um, I'm going to bear the ultimate weight of that, but it's in constant conversation. So she's giving me feedback and I'm seeking her feedback. She's seeking mine all the time. But I don't know any good leader that thinks they're omniscient and doesn't need to listen. All good leaders know they need great people around them to give them great feedback. But then again, wives, it, it's important. How are you going about that? There, there's a heart posture that can, be, that can possibly do that in a way that seems like you're trying to usurp him. And a different, maybe godly approach that can question him in a way that seeks to respect him and, and help him. So let me ask wives, if you feel threatened by the leadership of your husband, why would that be? It's just important to ask that why question. There could be a lot of different answers. It might be because he's immature and just immature spiritually and as a leader. 
and he needs help and he needs to probably repent of some foolishness. Could also be that there's something else going on in your heart that might make you feel insecure. And so it's just good to ask that question. Something's not right in my heart. Okay, what's going on there? What's going on there? I know in a sermon like this, it's oftentimes easy to come up with, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And those questions are normal and natural. There's a lot of different styles in the room. Not everybody has a default wiring that's the same. There's different personalities, different gravitational pulls in certain directions. And we're not saying that the Bible teaches that every marriage has to look like some type of sanitized version of marriage from the 1950s that you see on TV. That's not what we're saying. 1950s culture is not authoritative. God's word is authoritative. Okay? So in minimum, let me just leave with one principle. That, and I just want to end by challenging men in the room. I think one way, husbands, you can assess good leadership is this. When you look at your wife's face, what do you see? On a consistent basis, over time, okay? This is not the ups and downs of anybody's personality. We all have good days and bad days. I'm asking over a long period of time, maybe a year, what's the theme? What do I see as a theme on my wife's face? For the most part, is it some type of flourishing as you and her would define flourishing? Or is it grumpy, stressed, weighed down constantly, just on the edge of tears all the time, eggshells, that we're all kind of walking on. A Christian leader that I respect, I heard say this 30 years ago at a conference I was at, that you can oftentimes tell the character of a man by looking at the countenance of his wife. Now, there's nuance to that, and that needs to be qualified in a lot of ways. Husbands, you're not the Holy Spirit. Husbands, you can't control your wife and change her by sheer force of will. That will never go well. Okay? So I, I get the disclaimers. And I get the nuance that that statement needs. But I'm going to say it again because I think that 95% of the time I think it's true. You can tell the character of a, of a husband by looking at the countenance of his wife. So I'll just t tell you how this has played out in, in our family. Um, when we moved here, 2010, planted the church, and that was, you know, a stressful time of getting the church off the ground and raising money and negotiating all these different things and learning how to do church life together in Madison. And then two years later, we had this genius idea that my wife would become the headmaster of a new school that we were going to plant. And that was a big stressor. And we look back on that, and we had two kids in diapers at the time, I think, or close to that. And I look at some of y'all in the, in the lobby with four kids, and I'm like, how do they do it? And Kim will look at me, and it's like, yeah, that's what we did, except we planted a church and a school. And it's like, we, we wouldn't recommend that to anybody. So glad that we did it. Would not recommend that to anybody, okay? I mean, there were many nights we lay in bed and just like, are we going to make it? And we would just look at each other and be like, nope, we're not. <laughs> Like, just pack it up, let's move to Montana, or whatever, you know. Um, so would not recommend that. Glad we did it. 
Um, but things just kind of came to a head. Felt like, you know, to, you know, there's always little moments of crisis. But when I talk about that theme, it seemed like the theme I was seeing, the countenance of my wife's face, and she knows that I'm going to say this, was basically either grumpy or just fried. And honestly, that's kind of how I felt too. Um, just grumpy or fried, the dominant emotion. And just financially, we're like, I don't know how we're going to get out of this because the budget's tight, four kids, you know, and she's working and I'm working. And, but this is unsustainable. So I feel like as a, as a connection point for what we're seeing from the scripture and what I'm trying to communicate today is not that I like came up with a, a plan to like order her around, but as a, bearing the primary responsibility of my family, I wanted to have this mindset. And I didn't do it perfectly, but I wanted to have this mindset that I'm not going to let this go. I'm going to keep this issue on the front burner. Like I can't enable my wife just to maintain this countenance year after year. And then, you know, something, you know, you can only be under pressure for so long until something bad happens. And so we kept this issue on the radar. We talked about it a lot. And we had to make hard decisions. So we can't afford for you to not work. It just does, our budget just doesn't work that way. So where are we going to get extra money? Because we both decided that she needs more freedom in her headspace. She needs less responsibility. We have four growing kids. We really want to make our priority, uh, make our family a priority. And if both of us are grumpy and stressed basically all the time or fried like deer in the headlights, just go to bed and stop talking to me kind of mindset. Like that's unsustainable for our family. And these kids are going to grow up and be gone like that. That's not what we want. And so we made the hard choice of selling our house. We had all this money wrapped up in Madison real estate, which is going crazy. And, uh, and so we sold our house and we moved to the east side and we made a hard decision for the sake of our family flourishing. And so that's, that, that's just something to think in mind. Husbands, if your wife is not flourishing, is that more important than your home? Probably I promise you, you're not going to lay on your deathbed and go, man, I'm so thankful we had this awesome house, but my marriage sucked. I promise you, you're not going to be saying that on your deathbed. What you're going to care about on your deathbed is this woman that I laid down my life for, for God willing, 50 years. These kids that hopefully still want to hang out with us, you know, and a church family. That's what you're going to care about. So back to the main point, um, guys, what, what do you see on, on, on the face of your wife? What's the, your wife's countenance? He, God calls you, again, your leadership can, I'm not, again, I want you to hear, this is not some point-by-point point blueprint for every husband's leadership looking the same. That's not what this is. There's different styles. There's different giftings. We make provision for that. But this is the point, that if your family falls apart, God is coming to you first. And I just want you husbands to feel that. I want you to feel that and own that for the sake of the blessings of those that have been entrusted to your care. One final thing, and then we'll be done. Um, I, I know, again, that for many of us, this, this text just feels like, man, it just doesn't fit me. It doesn't fit me. I know a lot of people, I have people very close to me 
where they read this text, they hear what I'm saying this morning, they're like, sounds good, doesn't fit me. Some of you hear this, like, it just fits. This is how my default wiring sits. Great, I'm down, no problems. Others of you, it's not that easy. It's not that easy. And we just want to acknowledge that, that these marriage roles that we're talking about as God has designed it, sometimes it's hard to figure out how that's going to work in daily life. But I just want to ask this question. I want to put this before you. At the end of the day, do you want to try as best you can to adjust to what the Bible says? Or do you want deep down to have God's word just kind of made in your image? That's a, that's a great question, Christianity 101, discipleship 101. And it's very wise and good sometimes to just confess, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling to figure out how this applies with my default settings. Can you help me? Can you help me? And that's the beauty of the church. We come alongside one another. We walk with one another. If, it, if, if what the Bible says this doesn't seem to fit nicely into this essence that I find myself in, this, this human body, these human feelings that I have. We don't impose that on the Bible. We ask God to help us as we seek to have the Bible mold and shape us as he's revealed his word to us. And asking for help is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of wisdom. All right? So what we tried to establish today is that God created marriage and that in marriage, he calls men to bear ultimate responsibility for the family as the leader and women to co-labor with their husbands as their appointed helpmate within the family. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see how this exists to, to be a living display of the gospel of Jesus in the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it helps us. We ask, Lord, that you would um, give us humble eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.